I'm just hoping that soul food gets less hate and gets more love because it's a wonderful, rich, and beloved tradition. Food is family. Food is culture. Food is life. In our community, these aren't cliches. This is our truth. I'm Jay from Push Black, and in today's episode of Black History Year, we're talking food. The food that ties us to Africa. The food that connects us as a people today. The food that connects us to our ancestors, to grandma and them. In the black experience, food has also been used against us as a tool of the oppressor. Today, we're going right for the heart of it, just like you'd expect with Push Black. So get ready for talk you won't hear anywhere else about things like the surprising connection between fried chicken, watermelon, and black self-love. To make that happen, we're going to switch it up for this episode. We're fortunate to have two folks helping us break it down. Chef Rock Harper is someone you might have seen on TV, and his Queen Mother's Restaurant has been reshaping the ways we can embrace and reclaim fried chicken for our people. First, though, is Adrian Miller. As you'll hear him joke around in our conversation, Adrian is from Denver, but fam, yo, we can't hold this against him when we talk about barbecue. The man knows his stuff. His brother's also put in the work. He's become an important voice in our community for reclaiming our food traditions, and he's gotten some mainstream attention as well. His 2014 book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, won the James Beard Award, which is like getting an Academy Award for a food writer. Let's get to it. Adrian Miller, what does Black liberation look like to you? Oh, man. I think of a, of a society where Black people are equal, uh, where we have self-determination, and we can chart out our dreams, and, and there aren't serious impediments, artificial impediments to achieving our dreams. Um, so I just see a, a society where, for once and for all, we are actually a meaningful participants and we're included. That's what I think. Of, that's what I think liberation looks like. Um, we got a long ways to go. We got a lot of work to do, but that's what I think about. That's beautiful. In what ways does your work contribute to those ends? So I have a passion for finding kind of the the hidden history of our people through food, because I think food is accessible. My work has been finding those stories. But these are stories that were once told or forgotten. And then I'm just trying to get true attribution and acknowledgement for what African-Americans have meant to American society. And I do it for food. So for you, what's the first like bit of information or the first story that you heard related to food that made you embrace it? So the first thing really had to deal with barbecue. Um, this goes back to about 2002. I was involved in something called the Southern Foodways Alliance. I went to their symposium. And so I, I spent three days in Texas eating barbecue. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, bro, it was three of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> and, I'm um, sure. Yeah. But the cool thing about the Southern Foodways Alliance is they're about putting food in a social context. And I had just never done that before. And um, when I started learning more about barbecue history and its ties to slavery and how enslaved people uh, created that art form and, and were ambassadors for it. I just wanted more. Because before that, my deepest thoughts about barbecue were, mm, that tastes good. 
So I just I started making me a hunger for, you know, to learn more of that backstory. So let's start there. Tell us about barbecue and how it relates to black history. Yeah, so barbecue, as we understand it, is actually Native American in origin. It's that's the foundation. So what happens is you get Europeans that come interact with Native Americans and started grafting their own grilling traditions from Europe onto what Native Americans were doing with smoking. So Native Americans were often smoking meat over long periods of time so they could preserve it for later use. Europeans were more used to, they, I mean, they certainly smoked meat, but they were used to just kind of quick grilling to eat stuff as immediate feasting. And so you get this kind of interaction. And at first, Europeans tried to enslave Native Americans. That didn't work out. And they transitioned to white indentured uh, servants and, and African enslavement. And so barbecue in its earliest days was very labor intensive. Somebody had to dig a, a ditch, fill, uh, chop down trees, fill it up with coal, burn those down, kill some animals, process them, and then do the slow work of cooking them. And so the racial etiquette of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries was, uh, you know, get other people to do the work. And by the time you get to the 17th, 18th century, African-Americans were the go-to cooks for barbecue. By the time you get to the early 1800s, you're seeing reports of barbecues where 5,000, 10,000, 25,000 people are showing up. And in order to pull off an event like that, they relied on, on enslaved labor. So you have these folks who didn't want to do their own work and they brought in black folks to do it. In what ways did our people advance this art form? So I think it was a combination of things. One, a deft hand with seasoning that was a heritage from West Africa. You see the pronounced use of chilies um, in barbecue. So uh, early barbecue was kind of bland, but when African cooks get involved, the, the default seasoning was essentially vinegar and red pepper. And the other thing I think is just um, years of honed experience taking this culinary tradition and just learning how to, you know, innovating, trial and error, experimentation, and then just figuring out how to do it better. So much so that by the time you get to the 1870s, 1880s, people are saying that Black people are the best barbecue cooks. And even descriptions of barbecue in newspapers would make Black people an essential element of the process. They're like, okay, you have to get an old colored man to do this. Wow. That just showed you how indispensable African-Americans and how tied blackness was to barbecue in the 19th century. Wow. Wow. So what region, in your opinion, what's your favorite barbecue? All right. Now you're just trying to get me in trouble, man. Yeah. So look, I grew up <laughs> in Denver, Colorado, which probably lost me with street cred with a lot of people. But Kansas City was kind of the strongest influence on my barbecue palate growing up. So that's still my favorite. I'm a spare rib guy. So that's my touchstone. If I walk into a barbecue joint, I'm, I'm going to see what the ribs are like. Mm. Um, my second favorite is Memphis. Again, spare ribs, but also the pork shoulder sandwich, I think is glorious. And then I, I hate, I'm just going to admit it, Texas, Central Texas is is climbing the charts. Mm. Uh, so I'm getting, I'm starting to get a taste for brisket and all that other stuff. But still, it's Kansas City for me. What are some other foods that we embrace as a people today that may have ties even farther back than slavery. Yeah, so I, I think that we have several what I call African heritage cuisines, and really I should say West African heritage cuisines in the United States. And so broadly, we influenced Southern food because we brought our traditions of seafood, dark leafy green vegetables, frying, seasoning with chilies, 
the use of okra, watermelon, hibiscus, you know, all of these food traditions, ingredients we brought to this part of the world and influenced several cuisines. So I would say Southern food as just kind of the regional mother cuisine. And then within that low country cooking. So talking about the cooking of the Carolinas, places like Charleston and Georgia, places like Savannah, even down to Jacksonville, kind of like that low level places where you saw a lot of African heritage people living there. Um, we call them Gullahs and Geechees today. Mm-hmm. A lot of strong African survivals. I um, also Creole cooking. So people just focus on Louisiana, but Creole cooking was really kind of the whole lower Mississippi River Valley. So going as far north as uh, parts of Missouri and also including parts of Arkansas and even Mobile, Alabama, they had their own Mardi Gras celebration. So, you know, we shouldn't just think Creole, Louisiana and New Orleans. And then I would argue that barbecue, the way we influence that. Uh, one other food tradition is just one we don't really talk about that much anymore, but also the Chesapeake Bay area. Hmm. So 100, 150 years ago, people raved about the food of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, kind of upper Virginia. And that was heavily influenced by uh, enslaved cooks. The thing is, the food was so good that they overate. And so a lot of the delicacies that were noted from that cuisine, especially terrapin, which is a kind of turtle, people almost ate to extinction and mm. oysters and things. So it's just now that those natural resources are recovering. But, you know, they, people were known for that. Then uh, soul food. But the interesting thing I argue about soul food is soul food is really the food that black Southerners took outside the South and transplanted in other parts of the country during the Great Migration. Mm. Tell me about that. So in terms of talking about kind of soul food and the Great Migration, my argument in the book that I wrote on the history of soul food is that if you look at soul food, it's pretty much the celebration food of the South, because what enslaved people were eating was very close to what we call vegan today. It was just seasonal vegetables. If there was meat, it wasn't really an entree. It was really just to season the vegetables. So it was smoked, dried or salted meat and then maybe some cornbread. And so the typical day was you got up at the at dawn, a trough was filled with crumbled cornbread and buttermilk. Uh, and you ate that and you had to use your fingers or maybe clamshells because remember a knife or a fork is a potential weapon mm. and so enslaved people are always resisting, right? So you don't want to give arm basically enslaved people. Then at lunch was uh, the trough was then filled with vegetables. Again, uh, maybe some cornbread you were eating, all of that. And then supper late at night after the work schedule was over was essentially just the leftovers from that midday meal, which in the 19th century, they called that dinner. Uh, we've kind of changed the terms now. It's called lunch, but hmm. so that was it. So that was the typical meal. So uh, really it was only on the weekends and special occasions that enslaved people got access to things like white flour, white sugar, uh, you know, fried chicken and all these other things that are glorious parts of the Southern food tradition. So I agree with that soul food is really a celebration food of the South that gets transplanted. And if you look at other immigrant cuisines, it follows the same pattern. What we often think is the food of an immigrant group is usually the food, the celebration food of the old country, because when people get here, they're poor. But once they get established, they knew what the good life was like back home and they, they try to replicate it. And in restaurants, it's really pronounced because, you know, if you're a restaurateur, you want to show off the very best of your culture to the people outside the culture. Right. So you're going to have celebration food more often. And so how does this connect to like soul food Sundays? It seems like that lines up pretty well. Yeah. So the soul food dinner, Sunday dinner was essentially that celebration meal that was a continuation from our time during slavery. What people did to kind of build community, right? 
the Sunday dinner often f- uh, functioned through church, but as um, time went on, the Sunday dinner became more of a family tradition. Uh, so you think about this, the you know the movie Soul Food in the '90s, right? That was mm-hmm. kind of the most visual example of all of this. Now, church life is still very strong and vigorous, and meals are definitely part of the experience. But you're just seeing multiple identities for soul food now. But back in say, like right after emancipation, um, Sunday dinner was important, but the church was really uh, a center, a focal point of social life because of the geographic isolation of the rural South. So, from my understanding. Plantation owners often used food as a form of control. Yeah, so uh, plantation uh, slaveholders often used food not only as a mean of physical control, but also psychological. So um, now one thing to understand is that if you just break down slavery, most of the situations for enslaved people were on small farms uh, where there were only maybe one to five enslaved people total. So in those situations, uh, enslaved people and slaveholder ate out of the same pot because it didn't make sense to have a whole separate cooking team. It really like when we think of Tara plantation from Gone with the Wind, that was really only 40 percent probably tops of slavery. Otherwise, it was those small farms or urban situations. So but on those large plantations, they would be two teams to cook. So you would have uh, cooks in the big house to cook for the slaveholder and his family. And then you would have a cook that would cook for all of the enslaved people that were out in the fields doing the labor. And so typically, and those those cooks, especially the ones for the field hands, basically were pooling the resources of the controlled food that the slaveholder put out. So grossly just generalizing, once a week, an enslaved person um, would get five pounds of some starch, and that could be cornmeal, rice, or sweet potato, depending on where it was and what was cheaper, a couple of pounds of meat. That was usually smoked, salted, or dried. Now, it was usually pork because it was the easiest thing to raise, but it could be beef or fish. Again, it just depended. And then a jug of molasses. And what the slaveholder would do just to give the aura of power is there would be a big ceremony about people getting their food. So they would all be brought to the storehouse where the food was kept, and it was a visible ceremony of getting that, you know, just to you know, send across the message that, yeah, your, your survival depends upon me. Of course, enslaved people weren't buying all of that. And so they had to figure out strategies as to in in terms of how to survive. And so that's where you saw a lot of enslaved people hunting, foraging, fishing, and gardening in order to supplement the meager rations they were getting. And in a lot of situations, the slaveholder actually encouraged enslaved people to do these things because, you know, that was less money for them to spend and less to worry about. Did they have to break off the slave owner with some of that, or they could just keep it whatever they caught for themselves? It really depended. A lot of slaveholders did ask for a piece of the action, but there are several examples of enslaved people buying their freedom through the money they raised by selling excess produce in animals at the local market. Because during slavery, the work schedule usually uh, slowed by Saturday morning. And so enslaved people typically had the rest of Saturday and Sunday off to do whatever they wanted to do. You know, you mentioned these foods and these cooking practices that enslaved folks brought over from West Africa. Is there evidence of any intentional use of these to retain their culture and their heritage, or was it largely just out of necessity? Uh, It was a mix. And um, the situation where enslaved people was very fluid. So a lot of it just depended on 
what the slaveholders' attitude was towards enslaving people and how uh, he treated enslaved people. You found some people were very lax, uh, some were very controlling. And so the more relaxed ones, depending on the situation, allowed enslaved cooks to maybe replicate the things that they knew from their homeland. Others got had a more hands-on approach and made enslaved people cook the way that a European would cook. And so we have some stories of the slaveholder's uh, wife, called a plantation mistress, being in the kitchen and reading from a cookbook and directly instructing how, an enslaved cook how to make things. But when enslaved people were left to their own, um, they did try to recreate home through food. And that, um, if they were in a subtropical or tropical climate, they tried to grow the foods that they were familiar with from West Africa. But most of them were in a temperate climate situation, so they had to figure out substitutes. So that's how we give, go from, say, tropical yams to sweet potatoes. That's mm. one example. That's how we go from bitter leaf to the bitter greens of Europe, collards, kale, mustard, turnip. You can see these substitutions happening as resourceful and um, ingenious West African cooks are trying to figure out how to make, how to, in a strange environment, how to recreate home as much as they could. With enslaved people on um, on these slave ships, can you talk about that specifically? I've always been interested. Like, did enslaved folks bring over these? Do they hide food and seeds away, or was this through trade and the Europeans carried it along with the, the enslaved cargo? Man, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's kind of one of the enduring myths: is that enslaved people somehow snuck these uh, seeds over in their hair or other parts of their body as they were preparing for the journey. But, you know, that just belies kind of the history that we know of slavery because a lot of folks were just kidnapped. They had no idea they were going someplace. Um, in fact, there's a lot of accounts that enslaved uh, Africans thought that Europeans were basically kidnapping them to eat them. They thought Europeans were cannibals. Mm. So to, to hide the seeds, another thing, that that indicates advanced planning. And from what we know, for the most part, people were captured taken hostage and stuff. So I don't I don't think that a lot of people knew where they were going. So a lot of these foods were actually uh, provisioned on slave ships because in the early years of the slave trade, slaveholders basically force-fed enslaved Africans the food of Europe, but rotten versions of it, right? Spoiled meat, spoiled vegetables, all that kind of stuff. The mortality rates got so high on the slave ships that essentially the slaveholders had to change. Because, you know, from their perspective, it was just an economic calculation, right? They're just like, okay, how many of this human cargo can I get from one side of the Atlantic to the other? And when I unload them, how much money can I make? And if too many people are dying, they just can't make a lot of money. So what they did is they started feeding the enslaved the foods that they were used to from their ancestral home in West Africa. So um, just to back up a little bit, the typical West African meal is some kind of savory soup, stew, or starch um, a stew or sauce, a savory soup, stew or sauce served on top of a starch or alongside a starch. And so in West Africa, the starch is really what anchors the meal. So um, in Senegal and Gambia, even down to Sierra, Le Sierra Leone, that's more rice country. But then as you move further south, you start seeing grains like millet and sorghum, later cornmeal uh, anchoring the meal. And then when you get further south, like when you start getting to Ghana and Nigeria and places like that, then it's root crops, tropical yams, plantains, cassava. So we start to see records of uh, slave ship captains provisioning their ships with those West African ingredients. And they, and they tried to feed the enslaved people just something that looked familiar that and that was edible. 
So you mentioned, for example, Sierra Leone and rice. Slave traders would find folks from specific regions knowing that they would be able to cultivate certain crops in the Americas. What are you able to say about that? West Africans were such great agriculturalists that Europeans were actually envious of them. Um, We see several examples of slaveholders like kind of pissed off that their (laughs) enslaved people in their gardens were getting higher, much higher yields than what the slaveholder was getting. And Mm -hmm. so um, we know that uh, at least for the rice industry, people from Senegal, Gambia, Sierra Leone were brought to not only the Carolinas and Georgia to, to create the rice industry, but also Louisiana. There was a thriving rice industry there. The West Africans were familiar with various types of rice farming because they had their own indigenous rice. We always think of the white rice from Asia, but West Africans had their own kind of reddish rice that was native to their area. And they could do wet farming as well as dry farming. And so they were instrumental in building this industry. And just to show you how lucrative it was, at one point, a certain strain of rice was called Carolina gold. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because the color was yellowish. It was because of the value. And it wasn't until the late 1800s when a series of hurricanes hit the coast that that the rice industry just ultimately was shattered. Well, are there any other foods uh, like that that have those direct connections? Um, There were some other foods, but like, for instance, watermelons were brought over ahead of when African slavery really ramped up. And watermelons were so popular with Native Americans that they started just raising them all up and down the coast. So People, they, they were so successful and loved watermelons so much that people actually thought watermelons was a native plant in the Americas. Let's talk about watermelons that you, you just mentioned. So everyone who has any kind of palate loves watermelon, <laughs> but it became this food that has heavy stereotypes attached to it. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, it's just very fascinating. It's, it's, it's just one of the head-scratching things to me because... It's been it's been made so toxic that watermelon and fried chicken and, and this is these are food that whites eat too. But what I argue in my work is that essentially after emancipation, white people were down, but definitely not out. Racist white people. Mm-hmm. And when African Americans were getting all of these new found newly minted rights, you know, the right to vote, at least African American men, the ability to own property and other social rights, uh, there was a backlash. And so since white people didn't control the levers of racist white people, didn't control the levers of government the way they wanted to, they decided to do a culture war. So they essentially created propaganda to send the message that African-Americans were inferior, not worthy of these rights, um, either because they were just childlike or they were bestial. And so food uh, imagery was an effective way to convey those messages. So you see uh, a common thing with watermelon is you see little black children or even adults just in a watermelon patch, just without a care in the world, just eating watermelons, right? Um, Looking Mm -hmm. raggedy, caricatured. And that sense like, oh yeah, you know, all you have to do is just give them a watermelon and they'll be happy. They don't need anything else. Um, You even see some really racist stuff where drawing, there are progressive drawings where an African-American's head is slowly transformed into a watermelon. Mm. It was successive images. So, you know, the propaganda uh, worked. Because by, you know, by 40 years after emancipation, well, 30 years plus little, you've got segregation as the official law of the land in 1896 when Plessy B. Ferguson is passed. 
And the harm caused by these images resonates to this day. I, I know African-Americans who will not eat certain foods if white people are around. Um, it, it became more pronounced in the 1980s, that critique. But um, it's been, you know, you can look at black publications, even in the early 1920s, you had black doctors saying, yeah, you shouldn't eat this stuff. Um, and the other is that this is the white man's garbage. And that's been really powerful because people will say, well, why do you like soul food? I mean, I even got challenged for even writing a book on the history of soul food. They're like, why? That's the master's leftovers. Uh, you're literally celebrating and digesting white superiority. Uh, so one of the things that I wanted to find out in my book is just to sort out fact from fiction. And what I found out is that soul food is much more complex than people give it credit. It's the blending of West Africa, Western Europe, and the Americas in terms of ingredients, culinary traditions, and techniques. So the master's leftovers is, is certainly part of the story. But even something like chitlins, if you take a closer look at that, what you find out is that white people were eating chitlins too. Um. And that's a diehard thing. I was on a, another podcast just a week ago, and this guy was saying, yeah, well, why would anybody eat chitlins? That's garbage, da-da-da. And I'm like, well, actually, it was high-end food for Europeans in the 1600s, 1700s. And I shared with him an anecdote about how uh, I found a story in the, in the uh, slave narratives where an enslaved person wrote, just talking about her childhood, is like, yeah, master beat me because I didn't make the chitlins well enough. Wow. Wow. That's one story, right? But I, I, I tell that story because it, I just want to let people know that, you know, the narratives that have solidified around soul food are, are much more fluid than we give them credit. But they're so deeply ingrained, man. It's just like trying to re-educate pe or educate people about that has been an uphill slog. Our food traditions are demonized and, and weaponized against us when it's like, yeah, there's plenty of things out there that could be bad for you if you overdo it. And all these other people are eating those foods. Exactly. You don't, you don't get the level of hate that black people get. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I just urge people to maybe take a closer look at our food traditions to not immediately be ashamed of them. The other thing that's kind of recent that troubles me is that for Black History Month celebrations or Martin Luther King Day, people are staying away from having soul food because it's viewed as racist. Huh. This is a complete generational flip because 40 years ago, black students were protesting cafeterias at institutions to include soul food. But now it's viewed as racist. And it's, it's kind of like the continuing legacy of the toxicity of watermelon and fried chicken that's really driving a lot of this. Even events that are planned by black chefs are getting canceled because um, they're at majority white institutions, whether it's a college or a, a, an employer and a black person sees that menu and they just automatically assumed a white person conceived it. Hmm. So that's been a troubling trend. So I'm just hoping that soul food gets less hate and gets more love because it's a wonderful, rich and beloved tradition. What do you think it takes to get past that? I think it's going to take a mind shift on part of African-Americans because we're the ones actually giving it force. I mean, I just think we should say, we don't care what you think. This stuff is delicious. It's some of the best stuff on the planet, as you you know said earlier. And we're going to love it and we're going to embrace it. And I, I think um, because of the shame associated with these foods, one thing that I've noticed in the culinary space is you have a lot of accomplished Black chefs who just won't cook this food because of the negative stereotypes, which created a space for people outside our culture, namely white chefs, to not only embrace this food, but make it and make a ton of money. 
Like today, if you were to ask people, you know, like foodies, hey, you know, who do you think about for fried chicken? And I'm not sure they're going to think about a black guy or yeah. a woman. They're going to think about David Chang with the Korean fried chicken. They're going to think about Thomas Keller. I'm going to pause you. You're the second black person who works in food that's mentioned David Chang to me uh, as far as fried chicken. Can you tell us about, I don't want to make this a bashing thing, but I'm interested in understanding that a little bit more. Oh, yeah. So African-Americans, uh, especially high-profile chefs, weren't really associating themselves with this dish. It created a space for other chefs to kind of get known for fried chicken. And this is all part and parcel of a, a, a renaissance of American regional food that happened after 9-11. The theory that I find most persuasive is that it was such a shock to our system that we collectively went on a search for to understand what it means to be American. And we also needed some comfort food. And Southern food really filled that space. And so barbecue and fried chicken really take off in popularity. And one of the people who was well poised to kind of take advantage of that tide was David Chang, who I don't know if he's native born Korean, but he's definitely Korean American. And uh, in New York City, which is one of the biggest platforms, he rolled out Korean fried chicken and it's glorious. I've had it. And um, that created a craze. And so people want, loved Southern fried chicken, but they were looking for these other global tastes of fried chicken. And then Thomas Keller, you know, high-end white chef, he starts making fried chicken at high-end restaurants, which is something that you never, you wouldn't have seen that 15, 20 years ago. So um, because of where they were, the media markets, they gained a lot of notoriety for fried chicken in ways that, you know, black chefs used to dominate, uh, even monopolize, I would argue, but you just don't see that as much today. Is there some concern from Black chefs to be like pigeonholed? Oh, absolutely. So here's here's my counter to that. I completely get that. I understand. But how many French chefs do you hear, hey, don't associate me with rustic French cooking? Mm. You never hear that, right? right? They just make it part of their repertoire and then they go cook whatever they want. So what I want, my wish for African-American chefs is just learn. This is your heritage. It's glorious. People around the world love it. Be conversant in it. But, you know, you know if you want to be an Asian, you know, if you want to specialize in Asian cuisine, go ahead and do that. But I just think you should be conversant in the food of your tradition. Yeah. I mean, if you don't, obviously, as you pointed out, someone else will and somebody that's not of the culture and will make a lot of money doing so. Yeah. And what cracks me up is then you see you see these chefs bitterly complain about the success of others. And, you know, I even had I've even had chefs outside the community tell me they're like, why are you letting people steal your food? Because mm. <laughs> they see it. Wow. So, yeah, I, I will say up. this. I will say this. I, I see more and more high end chefs, black chefs actually doing doing this, embracing their color traditions. You know, like Chef Eduardo Jordan in, in Seattle at a restaurant called June Baby. He has a fried chicken Sunday, where he makes limited amount of fried chicken, that stuff gets gobbled up quickly. There has been maybe in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, conversation around health concerns with soul food and other Black cooking traditions. What should be of concern? What should not be of concern? Like, where do you stand with these type of conversations? Yeah, so, you know, the whole soul food is going to kill you argument really annoys me because I think it's very myopic because it doesn't really take a comprehensive view of soul food. Soul food is celebration food. And celebration food is stuff that you eat every once in a while, right? You don't celebrate all the time. So if you eat these things on a regular basis, it's not going to do your body well. 
So I, I think the first thing is for people to understand what soul food is. You may think that you have a constitutional right to fried chicken and you can eat it every day, but that's just not a good idea because these foods were just eaten every once in a while. So um, there's that. And the other thing is if you look at what nutritionists are telling us to eat, dark leafy greens, more sweet potatoes, more fish, okra, hibiscus is now a superfood, right? These are all the building blocks of soul food. So a lot of this is how it's prepared. One of the biggest trends right now in soul food is vegan. And, you know, as I said earlier, that's really is not an oxymoron because that's how our people were eating for the most part uh, 150 years ago. And then the last thing um, that kind of irks me about the soul food that's going to kill us critique is that it does not look at environmental factors. There's demonstrated evidence that a continued oppression and racism has health consequences. So I just think there has to be a more nuanced observation. And then the last thing I'll say about this is, truth be told, I just don't know how many people are actually eating soul food on the regular. I think a lot of people that are having these health consequences are loading up on fast food and convenience food. And soul food is being scapegoated. If you mention racism and oppression, and then you often we do live in food deserts, so we have to eat things that are just fast food and unhealthy. Can you speak to um, how a lot of that is playing into some of the health issues that we're seeing? Yeah, yeah. The concept of a food desert is, again, something that I think is part of a comprehensive look at um, African-American health outcomes, which is often downplayed in these articles. And what, what really kills me is that, you know, it's a lot of Black publications and media platforms that keep churning out these stories about Black food's going to kill you. So we know that there have been residential segregation patterns and Black folks have been relegated to certain parts of communities for, for certain purposes, usually just to put us in the most dilapidated section of the town, uh, but just keep us close enough so that we can work <laughs> for other people. Mm. And so because of the the lack of amenities and other things, there's just not a lot of public investment and private investment in a lot of our neighborhoods. So that means we're not going to have grocery stores. We're not going to have healthy food options. We're not going to have a lot of independent restaurants that other parts of town are going to have. So what does that mean? That means that African-Americans then have to look to other things for their food choices. In a lot of situations, those neighborhoods, just like our neighborhoods have a lot of liquor stores, right? We're going to have a lot of fast food and a lot of convenience options, like getting food from the gas station or 7-Eleven or whatever. And we know that those foods tend to be energy rich, but not necessarily nutritious. In fact, a friend of mine here in Denver named uh, Beverly Grant, who's a serious food advocate, she's like, a lot of the stuff that people eat is food-ish, not necessarily food. And uh, the unfortunate thing is because of the miracle of our food system, and I use miracle in the broadest sense of the word, we've got a lot of this food available now. And so I think one thing that's really been disruptive is people have gotten away from home cooking. And, um, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. If you're if you're working hard, right, uh, you come home, it's seven o'clock, your kids are hungry. It's a lot easier just to pick up something, order a pizza, get some burgers or whatever than it is to sit down and make that meal. And so, you know, a lot of people make that choice. And I don't I know I think we beat up on parents a lot for making those choices. But if I think if you walk a mile in their shoes, maybe those choices make a lot more sense. So I think it's a combination of things that are, are leading to a, a real kind of 
bad effect. Now, people are noticing this problem. And so what has really warmed my heart is just the active discussions of food justice that have been happening in the last five to 10 years. We have people trying to create community gardens. We have people advocating for grocery stores to open up in their neighborhood. People are looking at more interesting ways to get food to their neighborhood. There's, there are things called rescue alliances. We have one here in Denver where essentially people will bike food to a part of town that is a food desert. So, you know, we, we, we're going to need more creativity like that to figure out how to get fresh food to people. And we've seen a lot of changes at the policy level right now. Basically, electronic benefit cards, transfer cards could now be used at farmer market. And so I think it's a question of letting changing policies, creating opportunities. But then we have to get people to unlearn the bad habits they've learned over the past few decades. In what ways can we use our food traditions to continue building community? Well, I think one thing is like if we could be more intentional about just understanding our own food history and our food traditions – and it doesn't have to be on a community scale at first. I think it's just understanding your own family traditions. You know, mm -hmm. when people who from different parts of the South make things different ways, because one of the things I found is like, depending on where you're from, there's different ways to make cornbread, right? There's different ways to make greens or the types of greens that you're going to eat. Certainly different ways to make barbecue. So I, I think one thing is just uh, understanding our own heritage, maybe even tracing our own roots through food. And then being more intentional about sharing those stories with others within our community and without. I think a lot of the problems we have in our society right now is to use a term from an author named David Shipler is that we're a nation of familiar strangers. So mm -hmm. um, we don't really know each other. And the spaces we have in our society to connect are dwindling. And food is one of the few things we have left where people might be open to coming and, and sitting down at a table with somebody they don't know and being really open to learn. Check out Adrian on the socials and at his site, you can find him at Soul Food Scholar. Up next on Black History Year, we're going into the kitchen with my guy, Chef Rock Harper. Thanks for spending some of your time with Push Black's Black History Year. There's more to Push Black than Black History Year. We're engaged in campaigns for criminal justice reform, voting rights, and a whole bunch of media that's designed to lift up the community. Push Black exists because we saw that we had to take this into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. Chef Rock Harper. What does black liberation look like to you? Black liberation is uh, it's a tricky one because my mind goes into several different uh, branches on the tree. I think freedom comes to mind and, and black freedom. And uh, when I think about it, I, I'm, re I remember a, a time I used to work for this uh, CEO and this founder of this really big organization. And uh, he used to want to be a club owner. And he left his club owner dreams to start this nonprofit that essentially helps black folks, which is a great organization. And uh, I asked him, why would he choose riches and fame, uh, wealth? Uh, why would he choose um, 
to leave that in pursuit to help the community. And his answer really shook me and it sticks with me to this day. He says, when I was growing up as a white man, he's probably 70 something years old now. When I was growing up as a white man, um, I could see myself as the cop, as the robber, as the bank teller, as the, the judge, the lawyer. I saw myself everywhere in the world that I could do anything that I wanted. And that was very empowering to me. So I didn't say I don't want to be famous and rich. It is not either or it is all and for me. And that to me is a is a really core tenet to liberation, to freedom. So when I think of black liberation, it is the idea that we can have that freedom to live out our soul's desire. That's a great story. I appreciate that. So describe for us your work and how it connects to your vision of black liberation. You know, it is uh, ever evolving, my work. I'm blessed to to be a chef and to, to be able to serve people through food. I think that I, too, liberation is a, is a two-way street at least, right? So I, too, am being liberated in the process of whatever method I choose to engage. But I think that food is a, is a core tenet of, of our culture, of our society, of humanity. So serving food is a very intimate experience, right? So I get to cook for people and uh, they can enjoy my creations that came from somewhere else. But in that exchange, I get to learn about them and they get to learn about me. The food is just a, it's just an opportunity. I always say that food is just an opportunity for us to do what we really want to do. And that's like see and value uh, one another. And my work in that space, in the black liberation space, one is to, you know, use food as that tool to, to nourish and strengthen and build our communities but also economically, I think it's really important that, you know, we do have a, a chef in a sort of a restaurant revolution on our hands and have for some years. It's important that I um, really engage in this space and maximize the economic opportunities in order to to build my, you know, my four walls community at home and, and the community at large. Can you talk to me about when you were coming up? How did you get interested in food? You know, my grandmother and mother just my grandmother may she rest in peace was and my mother is just great entertainers or hosts and hostesses right so they just no matter whether it was a family reunion or a cookout or even a you know the repast the the way that they could move crowds through food and drink and host hosting i i really i was drawn to that i loved it i think as we all do and I just uh, I gravitated towards it. I started cooking really like omelets and noodles for my um, for my sisters, you know, my teenage sisters, friends when I was probably like 12 years old, or 11. So, I mean, it, it never hurts a little boy getting hugs for an egg sandwich from, you know, 16, 17 year old girls. So um, <laughs> the affirmation was there. So uh, that, that's when I really started eighth grade. I made lasagna, Mrs. Hill. Uh, let me make a lasagna. And I couldn't believe that I made something like that. And that was the first time that I knew I could make a profession out of this. I find it very fascinating that we eat a lot of foods that are um, very much based in African traditions. But I don't even think we realize it most of the time. It's just like this is what we do. So um, what are your thoughts on, on how we either intentionally or unintentionally use food as a connection to, to our folks? Yeah, um, it is all connected and it makes 
purest angry probably and people that know the connection sad it makes me sad sometimes the the way in which we are disconnected or the way we don't understand how this food came to be it's all connected to the past and it's not all like you know what we think there's some super deep story it's just the culture it's just a response to the environment brian mason and janine hayes of afro chic i think in their book uh they talk about culture is a community's response to its conditions something like that so when you see the genius and this is all cultures not just black when you see the genius of our ancestors especially in food it's just absolutely amazing how they did what they did and how uh, the food and the dishes came to be. Got it, got it. Tell me about your restaurant. How does your restaurant sit in the community? How does it play a role in building community? So Queen Mother's Restaurant is uh, something I created a few months ago, but it's really been brewing in my mind for probably decades now. Uh, We are flowing all in fried chicken and it is my tribute to my mother, uh, my grandmother, they are queens, and it is my duty to remind uh, myself and the culture and everyone that, uh, you know, as Birdman would say, we're going to put some respect on the black woman's name as it relates to uh, her contributions to culture, cuisine in general, like not even black food. So we're frying chicken. And I think that along with the economic opportunities that, you know, I'm engaging in, I think it's really important, just as we see Aunt Mama come down and Uncle Ben's come down, it's really important for us, like chefs, to put up symbols that say to to reverse some of that damage and to really, you know, rectify some of that um, some of that pain that was caused by these caricatures and these, you know, um, ideas that were meant to demean our culture. So I think it's important when we talk about liberation, when I think about it, it is important for us to be our true selves no matter where we are and no matter what table we sit at. I want to bring my complete self. I'm a service guy first. That works for me and my soul and my spirit and the universe. I look at everything like, how can I be of service? So every day when there's another opportunity to make more money, I don't shy away from them, but I have to ask myself, who am I serving? What am I serving? Is this, is this in line with my values? And with this restaurant, you know, I'm trying to strengthen this community. Like, do I just want to sell a bunch of chicken and be on somebody's list about how much revenue I gross? That'd be cool. But what's the higher thing? Like, how am I impacting the culture and how am I really putting something down that can just sustain, if not, you know, on the street, but in people's hearts and minds forever? I do really care about how we see ourselves and how you know, little girls or even, you know, when I say older girls or older men, older boys, how we see ourselves in 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 society. I mean, you know, the answer mama thing is real. There's a hundred years of this that was created to uh, put black women in a certain place. And how do we reverse that trend? I want people to be, you know, really proud of their culture of fried chicken. I mean, if you think about the billion dollar fried chicken industry. Chick-fil-A is on six days of op- of sales. They are the number one player in the chicken market. Then We're not in the same market, but they're the number one player. If someone's ancestor, if a 
our ancestors had a direct connection with what we know is the fried chicken segment in the restaurant business. That should be something that every little black boy and girl should be like super proud of and definitely not ashamed of. I keep that front and center. Like, let's make something that our people are proud of. That's amazing. Yeah, just imagine if instead of growing up with aspirations of getting to the league, you're growing up with aspirations of uh, making the best fried chicken, uh, you know, sharing Grubbaugh's recipe. Listen, and the money is longer. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you do a dollar for dollar, the money is longer, and you can walk after 40 years of doing this. Yeah. For sure. No yeah. concussions, none of that. Right, exactly. I want you to dig in more about the fried chicken aspect of this, the fact that you're doubling down on fried chicken. And and I say that because we also spoke with a brother by the name of Adrian Miller, who's a culinary historian. Are you familiar with uh, with Adrian? That's my brother, yes. Okay. Love Adrian Miller. Yeah. And so um, he was sharing with us that a bunch of black chefs for a while have moved away from doing anything related to fried chicken or like soul food at all, didn't want to be classified as a black chef. So I'm interested in understanding your reasons to go with that and, and roll with that. Man, so this you get, you get in the tricky territory with this. And this is a beautiful question. You know, I grew up in, I wouldn't say the streets, but I know street culture a little bit. And as a term, there's a, there's a guy in the streets and we call him a gorilla pimp. And what that means is that, oh, he does a lot of things. He's a bad guy. He's a very bad guy. But he will rob you for your product or for your whatever you have and then sell it back to you. Okay, it's gorilla pimping. So if you look at our culture, we're going to stick with fried chicken. The black woman through this disgusting mashup of slavery invented the fried chicken that we know today right so nobody was doing it the way that americans nobody was doing it prior to slavery in this way it happened so right we can all agree that it, it, this came at about as a, as a result of that what happened after that was that we were watermelon fried chicken our lips our hair our nose these these uh statues were erected to demean and devalue us not only for everybody else to say you're you're a nigger but for you to believe that you're a nigger and uh and then the crazy part about it here's where the gorilla pimping comes in now we are the purchasers of the very product as chefs, as historians are afraid or ashamed to eat out in public because it says that uh, I am something that I don't really believe I am. So I, I, I can't deal in that space anymore. You know, hip hop is a great example of you can't deal in anything that people think about you. I have to be me. And we have this gem, this valuable thing called fried chicken. And that's just one thing of our culture, but it's probably the most popular and the most valuable. So my uh, journey is we got to stop shying away from what other people think about us. We have to use it uh, in order to empower ourselves and our community. That's amazing. I appreciate that analogy. I never thought about it that way, but we're being gorilla pimped right now is what you're saying. Wow. Okay. So I appreciate you laying it out like that. Are there any other foods like that that you see being treated the same way? Or is it just like our our culture of food in general that you, you would say is been viewed that way? 
I think when you look at the West African diet, just historically, and, you know, people like Adrian Miller and Dr. Jessica B. Harris, they're, they're scholars and they, and, you know, Michael Twitty, they, they know uh, far more than I can about the, the food ways in the, in the thousands of years. But if you look at our diet, our diet is plant-based, um, not a lot of meat, uh, very healthy and nutritious and abundant and just like, um, it's it's a wonderful diet. There are other foods, right? So there, of course there's watermelon. There are, they're just things fried fit. Whiting, for example, is often uh, racialized, if you will. And I think that that's, you know, it is what it is, right? This is the system that we live in. Um, but fried chicken for me is the most, chicken is the most consumed meat in this country it's also fried chicken is the most polarizing meat or the most polarizing dish you can put uh in you know within our landscape if i sent you a picture of president obama like eating a slice of pizza photoshopped clearly and i put some italian music behind it like you'd be like what okay it's obama eating a slice of pizza if i sent you a photoshop with a fried chicken leg I don't even have to put the music behind it. I'm automatically calling my man something, right? I'm, I'm putting him down. That's polarizing. That's a hell of a marketing campaign. Watermelon economically was really empowering for us, but we're scared to eat it out in public because of a very successful marketing campaign uh, used by you know people in this country. So um, there, there are many others, but I think fried chicken is the most popular and polarizing. So fried food is delicious, obviously, but there's also certain health concerns. We were talking to Adrian Miller, and he has some interesting opinions on the way that our food is looked at as unhealthy and has been treated as unhealthy and something that needs major changes over the past couple of decades. I'm interested in your opinions on conversations around the health factor when it comes to soul food specifically and some of our favorite dishes i think that health healthy that term just loses so much we don't understand context and what's healthy for me as a 43 year old black man in virginia is not going to be the same as a 26 year old young lady in northern california and that's just the matter of fact. So I think that w- one of the things that we we don't do when we say healthy and I've I've been sort of in that space for over 10 years now is we don't offer context to the people or to the to the culture. And we can have that conversation but we don't have the same conversations about other cultures foods w- with regard to the frequency. I mean, I look at some of these smoothies and some of these drinks and some of these burritos and burgers and pizza way more calories, way less uh, nutrients, but uh, we don't have the same conversations about them. So I think I disagree with a lot of people uh, on the health of black food or it being unhealthy, soul food, because when you focus solely on the food, and this is really important, you have we have a tendency, I mean, a national trillion dollar tendency to forget and ignore the system in which it exists in all the other contributing factors that um, that contribute or the other factors that contribute to heart disease, hypertension. So the food is easy to hone in on, but uh, it's not that simple to me. The focus on food just seems to be pointing the finger at black people saying you're the cause of these issues you're having. But there's obviously larger uh 
systems that, that have a hand in it. Definitely. And I'll give you, for instance, I've been a chef and I've been tasked to go into different, I'm a black chef at that. I go in different communities and speak to people talking about healthy food. And I remember one year I was working in an organization and we went into the projects, uh, into this one city and public housing. And, um, you know, they planted a garden. These nice, well-to-do chefs, very educated. They were farmers and planted a garden and come back a year later, nobody was using their garden. And, you know, the conversation then behind closed doors is why don't they want to, you know, work the garden and plant their own vegetables? I don't understand why they're eating at the carryout. We got carryouts in D.C. And when you focus solely on the food, why are they eating at the carryout? The carryout's five dollars for some fried rings and rice. And I'm tired. I got to catch two buses to go to the grocery store. Um and I work two jobs and I got to maybe get a third, but I might lose my benefits. And, um, you know, the, the garden is out there. And like, where's the time? Where's the stove? Where's the, the you know, to be able to cook in the pandemic right now, people don't realize that's a luxury for a lot of people to be able to sit home and cook for your family. So when we focus on the food, we miss the opportunity to have a broader conversation about the, why I'm not gardening in, in, the, in, in the public housing. And I think that is more important uh, and that's harder work, but it's really important. Was this a group of mostly white chefs? I'm assuming that we're for sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I can and, just and, imagine and, like showing yeah. up. Hey, here's this group of white folks. Here's the garden. Y'all go ahead and handle Listen. this garden. It's what it's might be Listen, bringing back memories we don't want. Mike, Mike and them looking at, and Keisha and them looking at, like, what is she talking about? <laughs> Well-meaning folks, like, really don't understand. And that's cool. Okay, so here's the opportunity. Food is just an opportunity. You see what didn't work. Now let's dive a little deeper. Do you want to be the white savior, or do you really want to help this community? So let's go a little deeper. It's going to take some investment, your time, and for you to understand why this garden isn't working. And it might not be the right thing. We, like... Nobody should be eating at the carryout five days a week. That's, you know, you shouldn't be spending your food stamp money at the carryout on his greasy subs and fries. I get all that. I'm not saying we should overindulge in the way that we should. I'm saying that they're two different things, but it's going to take some empathy and for people understanding how complex the issues are and the access to food uh, is before uh, we move forward in a healthy manner. So how do you talk to folks about healthy food because you obviously have all the context around the circumstances and the uh, the facts and reality around that so how do you approach those conversations yeah i think um for 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 many of us i, I just say like acceptance is a really big practice for me we have to accept where we are often we live in the future and in the past and we just have to be here now so so if you want to um, lose five pounds what will that get you Right. So I'll be able to run and play outside with my kids if I lose 50 pounds. All right. So let's talk about how that would make you feel. So I really try to approach it from a what's the life you want to live and then reverse engineer it from there. You know, not demean your culture or your the way you eat or what, how you grew up, but to say, OK, if we make these changes, I can get this sort of life. Food people often make the mistake. You're when you say no fried chicken is unhealthy you're not just talking about the chicken you're talking about my grandmother you're not gonna win against my grandmother i got many italian friends if i told them 
no more cheese. I got to tell you, one of my closest friends, that's like, dude, you got to be vegan. I was vegan one year. I was like, bro, let's do this vegan thing. He's like, man, like, you got to be tripping. I'm not doing it. But if you think about the cultural significance of dairy in his family history, you're saying that my grandmother was wrong. If you just go into these communities and say, give up fried food, you're talking about uh, you're going against after church, right? You're fighting against the cookouts. You're fighting against all of the memories and the cultural cornerstones that I have mm. of my family. And you're saying, cut that out. I can't participate. You're not going to win that battle. So let's try to say, you know, look at it in, in a different way and move forward. Man. Okay. Well, let's see, man. Anything that you think our community should know specifically about our relationship with food and community I think customers, this is on us. There's a lot of education that we have to, there's a lot of things that we have to learn as black customers in, in the restaurant business. It's a very tricky line. You don't want to preach to anybody, right? We want to learn. We, we love learning as people, but you don't want to talk down to people and condescend, right? Um, so so you, it's a tricky line as a restaurateur. You have to be careful. Now, I don't owe you anything other than the product or service that I'm giving you. There's a bed, there's a minimum, right? Sometimes we sort of mistake neutral or maybe even subpar mistake service as in, and we like draw the line. I'm never doing this again. And you don't have the same smoke for Apple or, you know what I mean? Verizon, you know, Sprint, like you don't have the same smoke for them. So why would you do that for me? So I think that we have to, divest a little bit from being so emotional about receiving bad service or bad food. It happens. I'm not saying that we should excuse it because it is support like a black owned restaurant, but also we got to calibrate. Like we got to level that out. We got to put stuff in perspective and give them the opportunity to fix it. I was raised in the industry to saying we all going to make mistakes. That's not, that's not what makes you a great restaurant. What makes you a great restaurant is your response. How can I make you happy? And it's, you know, so, so I think that we can, uh, really educate uh, ourselves and our community just on how to complain or how to 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 resolve issues with businesses. But uh, I want to trail that into support, man. We need the support. Like we're going, you know, restaurant business is struggling right now. And without support, we're going to die. And, you know, they say when America got the cold, you know, black folks got the flu, right? It's the same in the restaurant business. We're not immune to that. Um, so we really need support and not just in June and July and August. We need support forever. We need to sustain this momentum of building community and allowing that dollar to bounce within our community. Right? I'm buying products from black creators. Right. Uh, so we got to bounce that dollar around. It's extremely important. This cannot be a moment. It has to be a movement and something that's um, sustained for a long period of time. You can find Chef Rock at rocksolidfood.com and Adrian Miller at Soul Food Scholar. All right, all right. So just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. You know, at Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. 
You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Escadar Getahoon, Leslie Taylor Grover, Abney Jones, Aquia Tay, Darren Wallace, and our producer, Sydney Smith. For Limina House, our producers are Jessica Rue France and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the podcast. Black History Year's executive producers are Julian Walker for Push Black and Michael L. Sesser for Lemina House. I'm Jay for Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace.